Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today is my great pleasure to have on Steve Benson. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. He's a fellow podcaster, which I just learned. He's the host of the Outside Sales Talk podcast, so definitely check that out. The reason I found out about him is he is the CEO of Badger Maps. Badger Maps is an app for field sales teams to perform better by leveraging geographic mapping, uh, so very much like outside sales, which actually brings us to our topic for the day, which is all about the transition from inside sales into outside sales as companies scale and look to do that. But Steve, I'm going to ask you a question I love to ask because I'm a big book nerd, which is what is your favorite sales book and why? And then we'll transition into our, our main topic of the day. There are several. I guess the one that I think has probably been the most influential for me is Impossible to Inevitable, which not only covers sales, but also covers, in general, how to run a SaaS company and different strategies in a whole bunch of different areas. But ultimately, it's all about building a great product and and then actually selling that product in, in starting a SaaS business. And so that's been a really important one for me. I'd recommend it to anyone. Is there something in there, like a a tip that either was a great reminder to you or something that changed the way that you run your business? Well, I think one of the most important things that comes from that and gets pounded home early in that book is that when you're starting a business, the founders have to be the first salespeople. You can't outsource sales right off the bat. The founders have to lead it and then be the VP of sales for the first couple of hires. Once you've got a few salespeople up and running and successful, then it's time to bring in a VP of sales to actually scale that team. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm reflecting on, you have a very impressive pedigree of places where you were a salesperson or a sales manager, IBM, Autonomy, Google, before you started Badger Maps. I'd love to hear as you wind your clock back in your head, maybe about what it was like to be a field salesperson at some of those companies. Very different experiences at those different companies. IBM, I was fortunate enough right after business school to, to join their, uh, they had a program kind of coaching and developing future sales leaders in their organization. And it's, it was a year-long training program where there was classroom-based training and in-the-field training, and you were paired with an executive to be a, a mentor and coach to you over the course of that year. It's something that I think a company like IBM, who's been around for 70 years, has figured out the importance of really developing their sales talent. And it's something that I think a lot of companies overlook. IBM, Xerox, a number of other companies are famous for just decades worth of world-class training programs. For people who don't get the benefit of having gone through some of those companies' training programs, what were some of the biggest things that you learned on that journey? They were really based in coaching how to deal with complex enterprise sales. You know, some people in the the SaaS industry are dealing with, some people aren't, but their stuff is high price point, very complex, many decision makers touching different parts of the organization. And that's kind of what they're fundamentally training. And frankly, they went through every piece of the, the sales funnel and the sales process from their perspectives, everything from, you know, penetrating accounts and getting to the decision makers all the way through to how to present, how to run a meeting, how to manage relationships, um, how to close, how to overcome objections. I mean, it was really, it was pretty broad based. I mean, it was a curriculum they developed 
iteratively, I believe. And so they would see where their weaknesses were and, and then try to coach around it for their, for their next generation. I mean, I assume you've now gotten exposure to both large and small deals. What do you think is the biggest difference in terms of the skill set that someone needs to close an enterprise sale versus a commercial or small business sale? I wouldn't say that either is necessarily harder. It's probably a different person who's going to be great at working in a high-velocity environment where they're closing 20 deals a month versus someone who's closing you know, two deals a year. The biggest difference, I think, is that when you're closing two deals a year, they're always going to be really big deals, obviously. And you just have to work with a lot more stakeholders, having relationships with all of them. But that's probably the biggest difference. And big deals are almost always face-to-face, whereas high-velocity deals are almost always over the phone these days. So I'd say that's, that's probably the biggest difference there. I did want to wind the clock back to one other thing, which is you mentioned that uh, you left business school and then you know went into this sales leadership development program at IBM, I was asked recently by somebody whether a, a salesperson, whether it made sense for them to get an MBA and, and if yes, part-time or full-time. And what would your advice be if someone asked you that question? An MBA is a great degree for salespeople to have. It's kind of a secret weapon in a sales situation to be able to really understand your prospect's business at a deeper level and be able to ask the great questions. And when they respond, you can listen and actually understand what they're talking about. That always really helped me, I think, because in business school, they give you a broad understanding of how different businesses and different industries work. And you don't really learn like deep, deep skills around like, you know, you don't become a great accountant or you don't become a great HR person or, you know, a great salesperson, but they give you broad skills. And one of those skills is the the ability to understand a business, which is super useful when you're selling to businesses. So yeah, I think it's a great degree for, for salespeople, especially I'd say if they want to transition from sales into something else like upper management. So I do think that sales is a great background for the leadership of companies to have. And, you know, we were just talking about Benioff. Obviously, that's a good example. But, you know, it, certainly in, in running Badger Maps, my, my sales background, I pull on more than, than almost any of my other skill sets or tool sets. C- certainly more than, more than the MBA, I guess. But if someone is in sales and wants to transition to an executive role, I think it's a great degree because it, it, it lets people see you in a different light. It, it can kind of remove glass ceilings and kind of prepare you, give you some of those broader skill sets that you might need to have a more executive or leadership role. After IBM, you moved into sales management roles at Autonomy and Google and love to get some, you know, any kind of tricks and tips you have around what it takes to be an effective sales manager and and what are some mistakes to avoid. The first tip that I'd give, and I think a lot of people already know this one, but it's it's an important one, is to is to break up your sales team into specific roles. So the more you can kind of you know, divide your people handling inbound leads, people dealing with calling outbound, people dealing with sales. The more you can break things like that up into different roles, the better. Um, one a lot of people don't think about a lot, but I've seen work a lot. You know, my my role now at Badger, what we do is we help field sales teams, right? So in, in general, a strategy that I've seen work out really well for people that a lot of people aren't using, I think it's great to break up inside sales and outside sales. A lot of companies today just have inside salespeople or just have outside salespeople. And I think that's a a powerful thing. It's worth the the cost of the flights. It shortens sales cycles. It can grow deals. It can deepen relationships. It can lower churn rates. I think it's important to put people on planes um, or have them live in a certain territory. If you're a large enough company, you know, have them actually based in Boston, for example. 
that's a, a play that I would encourage people to do. So break up teams, have some people working on the outside side of things. Let's say you have inside sellers. Should you allow them to travel? And under what rules? Absolutely. I mean, un- under the rules of, will this shorten our sales cycle? Will it grow our deal? Will it make it more likely to close? Just because someone's, quote unquote, most of their time, and they're an inside salesperson, and you hired them to be on the phones for the most part, there's no reason not to put them on a plane and have them meet with someone face to face. I mean, of course, you know, I was on the phone all the time when I was in these quote unquote outside sales roles, but I was also, you know, flying twice a week to different places and meeting with the different customers and prospects that I had in those places. But why, why wouldn't you pop for the plane ticket and the, the hotel stay to get your, get your sales rep in front of someone in a meeting, presenting, taking them out to lunch? If it compresses your sales cycle by a month, it pays for itself things almost always go faster, better. You can remove objections. A deeper relationship helps you beat competitors. Get in front of people. I actually, I spent two months on the road. I took a road trip around the US and just met with all the different customers and prospects that we had in all these different places you know, around the country. And I was just literally on the road for two months straight. And it was a fantastic experience. I mean, I, you know, as the CEO of the company, people really wanted to meet with me and really were, were interested. In, and I got to upsell people get to know them better, get to understand their problems better. I brought that knowledge back to the team and kind of was better able to coach. You just, you learn so much face-to-face with people. And I, I really encourage people to, to get out there and get in front of people. I think people do think of inside sales as part of the path into field sales, right? I mean, the ultimate end goal if you're pursuing being an individual contributor seller, right, is to, to be one of those mega deal enterprise sellers, right? That close you know, two $10 million, two $20 million deals per year. That's probably the holy grail. And, and you get paid commensurate with that super duper rare skill. I think it's a great path. I don't think doing huge deals should be a path for every seller. Some people are more tuned to things that would have a quicker hit. And you, they can have a shorter attention span. You need a lot of patience to do those big deals, right? It's like, <laughs> actually, one, one of my most annoying so- stories in sales. I worked this deal for like three years and then it was taken out of my patch because the company kind of rejuggled what products were being sold by different people. So I wasn't selling the product that this company was buying anymore. And it was like a, I don't know, two, two and a half million dollar deal. I forget what it finally went down at, the number of licenses, but someone else like got it and it closed like three months later. But and it wasn't because they were a great closer and I wasn't or anything. It was just the timing. Like it was just, it took them a long time to make this purchase and make this change. And so that I, I didn't get paid on that one, which was extremely annoying to me because I'd worked it for years. Getting back to your, your management experiences, um, I'm just wondering before we leave that topic, is there any other tricks and tips that are maybe counterintuitive or lesser known? One play in my book that I always recommend to sales managers, no matter how high or lower their team is performing, is to yoke the strength of their team. And what I mean by that is sit down with a spreadsheet, you know, make a list of all the people on your team down the left-hand side. And then, then across the top, write down in different columns, just the different skill sets that are really important to your reps at your company closing and being successful reps. So, you know, could be overcoming an objection. It could be closing skills. It could be how to prospect in this way. It could be, uh, you know, how to run a great presentation. Just all the skills that you see, get a nice list of the 10 most important skills that are going to make someone on your team successful. And then rank everyone on your team based on 
on each one of those skills. So someone could be a, you know, a three out of 10 at, at uh, overcoming objections, but they could be a, a, a nine out of 10 at closing. And different people are going to have different, different skills. A lot of times different people on the team you know, are strong in different areas. And I also ask them, you know, how do you rank yourself? For one, it's a good exercise to just see what you think about them versus what they think. And also ask them, who on the team do you think is really awesome at different things? Like if you were going to name the best person on the team at prospecting, who would it be? If you were going to name the best person at negotiation, who would it be? Yada, yada. Look at the list and see who's the best at every single thing and empower them to teach the rest of the team how they do that so well. So if someone is great at negotiating on deals when there's a competitor involved and they just they know exactly how to do it and they're great at it, have them give their best practices, their tips and tricks to the rest of the team. Like you know, at a weekly meeting, have them take the floor for 20 minutes or or an hour, whatever, depending on the complexity of the skill set, and have them be a leader. Not only does it develop leadership skills in your team, but it's very empowering for them. It's a way that you can spread best practices across your team and make your whole team stronger. One of the skills you mentioned there was was objection handling. And I know you and I have spoken offline before about maybe special tips around handling price objections. Would love to you to share to share any tips on that because it's probably the biggest objection people get. And despite it being so common, people struggle constantly with it. Yeah. So this is actually, I think, a really, really important skill, um, especially in the software industry. Everyone deals with price objections, but in every industry, I think, but it, it, they certainly come up almost every time in software. The first key to handling any objection is that you want your rep to raise the price objection, bring up price before the customer does. So how do you do that? Just in your presentation, you know, mention, and a lot of people ask about price, and um, it totally makes sense why why they'd want to know about this because we're not the cheapest product in the market, but we are the best one. And uh, the value that our customers get out of our product is far greater than our competitors. Let me show you how. And, and kind of walking someone through that, bringing it up before they do, it first of all, it builds trust with the customer because the customer then feels like you understand them because they're like, actually, oh yeah, I was going to bring that up. It also refocuses price and a price objection onto the value that they're going to get out of your product, which is so important in software. So you really have to focus them on, yeah, you're paying $50,000 a year, but you guys are going to sell $5 million more in the next year if you have this than if you don't have this. So obviously it's worth $50,000. And I run into things like that all the time, like where you've gone through the math with someone and shown how much value they're going to get out of it. Out of it and then they complain about, you know, paying 50 grand or, or 10 grand for your product, right? I mean, it's, I've seen that a million times. But anyway, that's the first tip to overcoming price objections is making sure you bring things up first. The second piece here is you really want to show them why your pricing makes sense. And that's by refocusing on the value. And it's all about verifying the value by showing them concrete numbers around something. Like if you, you've got to get them to say, I believe that I will sell $5 million more a year if I have your product than if I don't. Once they've said that, then you can just keep pointing back to that throughout the pricing discussion. The next thing is you really got to understand what's behind someone's price objection. So there could be something that's cheaper that they see as a substitute. One key thing there is you can point to the risks. If you're the market leader, there may be certain risks to using the the product that's cheaper or or not as good. And you want to make sure you point those risks out. And risk really, you know, that risk is a key thing, right? When people are buying a product, 
they may be objecting because it's risky. They may be afraid to get your solution because, you know, if they buy something that doesn't work, if it's a big purchase, they could literally lose their job. It's a big deal, right? So you're, a rep needs to learn to put themselves in the prospect's shoes and know how to reassure them and show them that the product will work. I mean, the way we do this at our company is giving them a free trial so we, they know it works because they've already used it. Especially if you can't do that, that's a, you really need to overcome this risk objection because not every software company can just you know, give out their software you know, and, and let people have a free trial because it's too complicated to set up or whatever. So especially if you're not in that boat, you really have to take the time to make a prospect feel safe and secure. And the final price objection I'd say is that they just don't have the money. Like they really truly like, and this, this, I'd, I'd call that the honest price objection is, uh, is they actually do not have money with like, they're like, no, I just don't have the budget. And they mean, I really do not have the budget, which, you know, that's a tough, that's a tough one to, to get around. But there are things that you can do even in that, in that situation right? without giving them a huge discount or, you know, if someone really doesn't have the money and I really believe them, I've given them two months of the product for free. And then under the belief that within two months, this thing is created value that makes it pay for itself. And you can take some of that value and, and then pay for the software. And that's, that's worked. I think all four price objection handling things are valuable. The first one you mentioned, the rep proactively saying, look, we're not the cheapest solution, I think is the most brilliant preemptive pricing move that's, that's out there. One other thing I just wanted to come back to a little bit, we talked a lot about kind of individual contributors and first-line managers moving from inside sales to field or outside sales. If you're giving advice to, I know we have listeners who are in sales operations and strategy and so on, if you're giving advice to someone there and, and they're about to make that move, what are some of the critical considerations that they need to think about for being successful in that inside to field sales move? It's an easier transition than a lot of people would believe. I think that a lot of people who are in inside roles would be you know, fantastic in, in outside sales roles. And so it's, it really just involves starting to let them get on planes and meet with their customers face to face. I think time management is a big challenge for people going into outside sales compared to inside sales. If you're just doing everything over the phone in front of a desk, it's very easy to be very organized. The inside salespeople tend to be great at using their CRMs compared to outside salespeople just because they're already at their desk, right? And, and most CRMs are kind of built to be used at a desk. As a sales manager, if you're moving people into outside roles, you do have to give up a certain amount of control. You do have to understand, like, you can't just walk up to them and, and see what they're doing at their desk. Now they're, they're just gone three days a week and you don't know what's going on out there. You have to trust them more and and there, there are ways to trust but verify, obviously, in, in the world. But you do, you do have less control. You do want to keep gathering great data from the field. You know, that's obviously something that our company helps with is that process of gathering information from the field, from outside sales teams, and then getting it into the CRM automatically. That's always a pain point with field sales teams is, uh, is the capturing of data and getting them to use the CRM appropriately. They become difficult, if not impossible, to micromanage once they're once they're in the field. Uh, another thing, I mean, you do have to plan things out a little better if you're a field salesperson. Like, if I'm sitting at a desk right now, I can call someone in Australia, and two seconds later, I can call someone in, in New York, and then I can call someone in Tel Aviv. Right? Like, it's I'm virtually moving around the world. But if I'm actually going to meet with someone face to face. I don't just want to have one meeting while I'm there. I want to line up, a, I want to schedule out a day, I want to build a route, I want to 
figure out, hey, well, I'm going to meet these five people. I had this is my anchor meeting, but with this important customer that I'm actually flying out for. But while I'm there, you know, I should plan to meet this person and this person and this person. And that means meeting this person for breakfast at 8 a.m. and then driving over here and meeting this person at their office at 9.30. And do I have enough time to do that? Will I be on time? There's a lot more planning and scheduling out that you have to do because you're actually moving around in a territory in a way that you're not when you're an inside salesperson. And you know, that, that's obviously another key thing at Badger Maps that we, we solve for field salespeople are, are problems like these. If people do want to learn more for, from you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you or to learn more about Badger Maps? If they want to learn about Badger Maps, I would just go to our website, badgermapping.com. In exchange for enduring listening to me for, for this half hour or so, the, uh, mention the name of the show to any of my sales reps and, and they'll apply two months free of Badger to, to you and let you kick the tires and the thing. If you want to get in touch with me, LinkedIn's a great place to, to get in touch with me. That's probably the easiest way to engage with me. My podcast is Outside Sales Talk. It's a podcast specifically covering the skills that field sales people, outside sales people need. And, uh, and I, bring on, I bring on sales experts and talk through different elements of being a great salesperson and developing their craft. That's another way to learn more from me. Once again... I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.